Welcome to the 42nd episode of the Known Pleasures podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss the post-punk slash new wave era of the late 70s and early 80s. In this episode's description, you will see a link that will take you to a Spotify playlist that's been created just for this episode. You will also see a link to our Facebook page, our Instagram page, and our Twitter handle. So now I guess it's up to me to introduce the subject of today's podcast. And I have to say, I just don't know where to begin. During the mid-70s, a group of angry young men sprang from the punk scene in London. They possessed a singer-songwriter sensibility, combined with an acerbic wit, lyrical acrobatics, and melodies that would have made one or two brill-building composers weep with envy. The three musketeers leading the charge were Graham Parker, Joe Jackson, and the subject of today's podcast, Elvis Costello. From My Aim Is True to Get Happy, the albums we'll be discussing today, Elvis Costello showed the world that songs about guilt and revenge could be infectious and inventive. And his lyrics would inspire many young lyricists, myself included, to pick up the pen and try our best at Castellian verse. So here is our Elvis Costello podcast, and I don't think I'd rather be anywhere else but here today. Yeah, the Elvis Costello story, unlike a lot of stories, begins with a musical parent. Mm. And in Elvis Costello's case, his dad, Ross, was a trumpeter and singer, most notably with the Joe Loss Orchestra, and he also did, did his own recording under the name De Costello. So uh, Costello's not his real name? Costello, well, it was Elvis's great-grandmother's surname, is that right? Mm. I remember as a kid, we had the Joe Loss Orchestra Plays Glenn Miller album, which featured vocal tracks mm. featuring the vocals of Elvis Costello's dad. My lonely days are over. So I, I kind of grew up hearing Elvis Costello's dad without even realising he was Elvis Costello's dad until about six weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, have you seen Elvis's dad? There's a video clip going around of him playing If I Had a Hammer with the Joe Loss Orchestra, and he looks exactly like Elvis. He looks a, a, a bit to me like a cross between Elvis and Stephen Colbert. Yes. So yes. I always thought Buddy Holly was the, the uh, reference point. Mm-hmm. Or even the Big Bopper. <laughs> bit of a callback there. And Ross wrote the music for a jingle, Secret Lemonade Drinker yes. single. You'd be familiar with that, Graham. Actually, I've only just become familiar with this jingle. Um, and there's one particular version of the TVC where he's miming to the bass guitar. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's really blurry, so you can't really see Elvis. You just have to assume it's him. I'm a So then Elvis himself was born. What happened next, Graham? Well, he was born in 54 in uh, Paddington in London, Uh, spent his formative years around Middlesex, um, did all of his early schooling there. And then eventually in 1971, when he was 16, he moved with his mother to uh, Birkenhead, which is near Liverpool. Yeah, both of Elvis's parents were from Liverpool, so it was kind of a homecoming, really. And not long after that, he got together with a buddy called Alan Mays and formed a band called Rusty. Interestingly, um, Elvis has in recent years gotten back together with Alan Mays and recorded the Rusty songs properly. So when they got back together, were they a little rusty? 
Interestingly, I mean, I'm just wondering what this Alan Mays guy felt like. Yeah, really? You, you you waited until I was in my mid sixties before we <laughs> Yeah. We, we formed this band in nineteen seventy one and you wait till yeah. now. You wait till now? Yeah. Thanks. I don't know. I haven't heard it actually. I don't know what it's like. Uh, then he went on to do another band after that. He moved back to London in seventy four and formed Flip City. And Flip City were like a, a pub rock band in the mould of Brinsley Schwartz and Dr. Dr. Feelgood. Yeah, was Dr. the style at the time. Well, he was very influenced by Brinsley Schwartz, I think. Their kind of collective ethos. And, I mean, the, the Flip City band all lived in a house together, which, as did Brinsley Schwartz. And uh, Nick Lowe, we should say, was in Brinsley Schwartz. Mm, yeah. Elvis t- took a lot of pointers from, from the Brinsleys. The Brinsley playbook. He also uh, got a number of office jobs at this time, and he most famously worked at Elizabeth Arden. And what do they do? Uh, is it makeup? I believe so. <laughs> <laughs> so. I thought you were going to say something different. So <laughs> you put a doubt in my mind then. I mention that because on his first album in a song called I'm Not Angry, he sings, I spent all my time in the vanity factory. And the Vanity Factory was indeed Elizabeth Arden. Didn't he also work at the Midland Bank? Yes. In the computer section? Yes, and he looked perfect. (laughs) He fit right in with those glasses. Mm. And also, he married Mary Burgoyne. I don't know if that's how you pronounce her name. November 74. Like Sting, Mm. got married early on, had children early on. Mm. And was under probably severe financial pressure while he was mucking around doing music. <laughs> yes, I'm sure Mary's parents were like, oh, God, a musician. Yeah, great. Yeah. <laughs> I've got that in 1976 he finally got a solo deal. Is that right, with Stiff Records? Yeah, basically Stiff Records placed an ad in the music press asking for demo tapes and um, Declan, with demo tape in hand, went round to Stiff Records and dropped it off and Nick Lowe, apparently, once he heard the tape, Elvis was as good as signed. Isn't that around the time that he... Uh Jake Riviera from Stiff suggested he might want to get a a bit more of a rock and roll name. I should point out the Stiff Records was uh, Dave Robinson and Jake Riviera. So Dave Robinson was Graham Parker's manager and uh, Jake Riviera was the the wild man that became Elvis's manager. So so this was when he started being called Elvis Costello? Yes, yes. Jake... Decided to merge, was it DP Costello? Yep. Something like that, yeah. With Elvis. And and the Elvis part came because... Because Jake thought it would be a good idea. And, and Elvis Presley had died in 77, so I think maybe that was a bit more punk rock to take that name. Yeah, well, he wasn't using it anymore. So. <laughs> he wasn't using it, so it's free. I think Elvis Presley died in about August 77. Oh, okay. So I'm not sure where It, where it makes a better story, though, if changed. he died and he decided to take that name. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, we'll go. We'll go with the facts if well, you maybe want. Maybe Elvis Presley was un, was noticeably unwell. Yes, mm. he was spending a lot of time on the toilet. Um. <laughs> let's just, let's just not. <laughs> also, um, in August '77, Gracho Marx died, so he could have been Gracho Costello if, if Which you wanted. Wouldn't to. be bad. That's pretty. That's <laughs> actually, that probably suit him better. <laughs> well, yeah, he, he was kind of a bit grouchy. Well, shall we go to uh, Miami's True? Well, the first album. Mm. Well, we probably he, should. He, he did release singles before then. Mm. Um, on the 7th of March, 77, he released Less Than Zero. His first single. Turn out the 
suspect even your mother won't detect it, so your father won't know. Which is his first single. It didn't do well. The song was all about Lee Harvey Oswald. <laughs> oh, I, I thought it wasn't. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was about Oswald Mosley. Patrick, do you know who Oswald Mosley was? Uh, yes, he was a slightly fascist English politician. Slightly, okay. <laughs> who, well, Hitler was the guest of honour at his wedding. So he was kind of a little so, bit of a fascist. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> it's very generous of you. He did kind of dip a toe yeah. into fascism. <laughs> He was probably into it before it was cool. (laughs) (laughs) He was the uh, the leader of the British Union of Fascists in the 20s and 30s, I believe. Yeah, yeah. But as I said, the song didn't do very well. Which is surprising because it's a really good song. And a pretty upbeat topic as well. (laughs) (laughs) On the 21st of May, not long after that, he released Alison, which strangely wasn't a hit either. Can I just say, I think Alison is one of the greatest songs he's ever written. Really? I can't understand how... It wasn't a massive hit. It would be a massive mm. hit today. Allison, I know this world is killing you. Oh, my aim is true. This debut album was recorded over six four-hour sessions at Pathway Studios, and the musicians that they hired was a country rock band called Clover. American musicians. Yeah, Mm. American musicians. Can I say something about Clover, which is that they had been around for ages. They, They formed in 1967. That's how long these guys had been around. And Clover themselves had formed from the wreckage of the tiny hearing aid company. (laughs) <laughs> so, right. you know, I often wonder what happened to those guys <laughs> they went on The to flaming wreckage of the tiny hearing aid company <laughs> Why did he um, I know he hadn't, had, didn't have a band at this stage The attractions mm. were yet to come But why did he hook up with these guys especially Well Jake Riviera had just recently signed um, Clover to Stiff Records mm. And when hearing Elvis's songs He detected a certain American influence, so he thought this would be like a, a match made in heaven. Okay. And you probably know that um, Clover had a fairly famous member, a fellow called Huey Lewis. Huey Lewis, yes, that's right. Uh, although he didn't play on the album. No. On this album. Because all he did was sing and play um, mouth organ. Not at the same time. No, no. <laughs> and he obviously wasn't needed for these sessions <laughs> no. because uh, Elvis was the singer. It might have been a better album if he was on it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's on already. Um, did you want to talk about Red Shoes, uh, the third single, Graham? The third single? Well, I actually have read the lyrics many times. I really like the song. It's one of my favourite songs on the album. But I have no idea what it's about or what he's trying to say. I thought it was about mortality. Angels want to wear my red shoes. Mm, Like he's trading something Mm, for mm. his life. That was what I understood it to be. But I could be wrong. I'm I'm going to defer to your expertise, in which this case you don't know anything about it. (laughs) In this case. (laughs) We should preface this um, whole discussion with the fact that Graham is a massive Elvis Costello fan Mm, and probably his favourite artist of all time. We just want to throw that in, listener. (laughs) It's it's, it's true. He was a big influence on me, but I... um, I didn't want my 
Elvis leaning partisanship to influence the outcome of the podcast, basically. I think it's fair to put it out there. We had U2 last time. That's Patrick's one. Mm. Patrick was the president of the Australian branch of the U2 fan club. Yeah. For many <laughs> this years. This is a complete fabrication. Yeah, but it sounds good. So we've got two massive <laughs> fanboys here in the last two podcasts. Mm. I don't particularly like any of the bands we cover. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. you know. Yeah, you're still waiting for the first I'm band. I'm still waiting for some but band I'm interested in. Do I have to mention <laughs> the Stranglers again? The, the, or yeah. Public Image. The what? You love those bands. I'm not familiar with any of their work, mm. but, but thank you. Go on, well, On those podcasts we had trouble getting a word in. Mm. Please continue, Grant. <laughs> oh, I'm really upset that I've got nothing to say about Red Shoes. Like, apart but what from about the, the album? Let's let, we don't need to go through every single single. Well, we no. just did. So we have already. Well, yeah, there's Watching so the Detectives, but we'll get to that in a minute. But watching the Detectives came out later. I'm happy to talk about that because that's probably, and Patrick and I were talking about this, would that have been the first time we had ever heard of mm. Scassola? Mm. Um, it was the same with me. Just, yeah. be, just before we go on to those songs, I just wanted to say that with this first album, I think this album is an interesting insight into what Declan was listening to like in his teens, I guess. There's a bit of country and R&B and soul and pub rock. So there's a song called Blame It On Kane, which is almost a carbon copy of an old um, Sam Cooke song called That's It, I Quit, I'm Moving Out. When we used to say goodnight, I'd always kiss and hold you tight. But lately you don't seem to care. You close the door and leave me standing there. Oh, honey, that's not fair. I think the only thing that this has in common with the punk movement is that there's a DIY ethic about it. Mm, mm. Um, and the album's not slickly produced. His voice mm. isn't a classic rock singer voice. And I think that's why people thought of this as being alternative to mainstream. Mm. But it certainly wasn't punk. It, it wasn't... Um, there were other bands around at the time, like the, the pub rock bands, for instance. So Dr Feelgood released a couple of albums, I think, in 77, mm. which sound more raw to me, mm. than this. Well, this is slap up. bang in the middle of 77, July 77. Mm. is pretty much when this is all happening. You certainly need to be aware of the timeline here. I mean, Sex Pistols hadn't released Nevermind the Bollocks yet. You know, so Elvis Costello's first album came out before, you know, the archetypal punk album was even released. Mm. So, yeah, it's like he, there was no kind of template for, for, for what he was doing. I think it's interesting to talk about watching The Detectives, which came out in October, so it mm. wasn't on the original pressings of this album. This song really, like, grabbed my ears at the time. I remember thinking, this is fantastic. And I didn't realise, it was a hit in Australia too, I didn't realise that he had been inspired to write this after listening to The Clashes album. Mm. Mm. Basically, he said he sat up all night, drank 50 coffees and went over The Clashes album. debut album, didn't like it, hated it at first and then slowly got into <laughs> it and understood what was so great about it. But the reggae influence of the, what The Clash had been doing seeped into this song. And I also think it's interesting that the musicians on Watching the Detectives are different to the album uh, mm. musicians. So, you know, mm. I, I just think it's a fantastic song and it's, I always I'd assumed it was on this first album. But can I just give you my opinion on the first album while, while we're talking about it? <laughs> the word that came to my mind was derivative. The first thing I thought of when I heard it, it just sounds like country and western rock, Springsteen blues, his accent. Um, I wrote down <laughs> when everyone around him was looking for year zero, Elvis was quite happy with 1974. Mm. <laughs> That's what it sounds like to me, apart from Allison's a great song and watching the detectives, but it sounds to me like it's tailor-made for the US almost. Mm. And, and, you know, mm. and they loved it. 
it was a um, number 32 in the US hit. It yeah. was unbelievable. It was the most <laughs> successful imported album yeah. in history in America at that time. I would I would not have thought amazing. it got that high in the States, but but now when I hear mm. it, I, I go, okay, well, it was kind of feels like it was made for them and it worked. So there you are. That's because of the tiny hearing aid company. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's their influence. <laughs> well, they had such a huge following in America. Everybody was waiting to see what they did next. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was also going to say it sounds very Graham Parker influenced, which is what yeah. you were talking about before. He sings like Graham Parker. Mm. Um, and two of the rumour, Graham Parker's future band, played on Watching the Detectives. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's possibly where that comes from. But I just feel like it's very uh, influenced by other things. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's all, all fair point. This is why I was kind of saying... Uh, with a lot of punk bands at the time, you didn't get to hear the music they were listening to before their first punk album. Mm. But with this, mm. everyone got to hear his history. Yeah, like yeah. no one heard Joe Strummer's folk rock. No, story. that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, true. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I think um, Elvis was more of an accomplished musician and had been sort of doing what he was doing for quite a while mm. before this. Mm. But there's that word opportunist again. It, the times were right for him to do something. Mm. His image was tweaked a little bit, changed mm. your name to Elvis. Mm. Uh, yeah. He certainly fit in with the new wave. I mean, this yeah, is why yeah. we're talking about him, obviously. Mm. But he was absolutely fearless in terms of just like to release Allison as a single mm. is mm. a ludicrous thing to do if you're trying to kind of forge, you know, a bit of an image. Mm. as this kind of rebellious, you know, countercultural kind of person. And I mean, Alison is such a beautiful song. Mm. And I love the kind of empathy that the narrator has for this woman who has, you know, rejected him. Mm. It's a really unusual kind of lyric and really kind of mature. Mm. And yeah, it doesn't have the, the kind of anger that came to sort of characterise the Elvis Costello output. Well, he would have been only in his early 20s at this point. He was born in 1954, so he's probably 22, mm. 23 mm. when he wrote mm. it. Though I want to say about his performance in the States at the end of 77 on S- Saturday Night Live or SNL, oh, yes, yes. which is pretty punk rock. Mm. I don't know if you want to talk about it, Graham, but apparently he was substituted in December 77 for the Sex Pistols who couldn't get visas. Now imagine the Sex Pistols on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, I'd love <laughs> that to have seen that. Unbelievable. <laughs> but Elvis thought, I'm going to do my own uh, kind of punk rock thing. And I think, the re- as far as I understand, the record company wanted him to play less than zero. And he started playing that for a few bars yeah. and then stopped it in the middle of the performance and switched it to radio. I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, there's no reason to do this song here. upset Lorne Michaels, the producer of the show, and they were banned for about 20 years or something from then on. But it's a really cool thing to do. And apparently he was inspired by Jimi Hendrix doing something similar. Yeah, Jimi Hendrix did mm. a similar thing. But that's that's pretty punk rock in December 77. That would have mm. made America yeah, yeah, sit yeah. up and yeah, take notice. Yeah. This is what I think every time um, I read about him at that time, he wasn't just a new, you know, the new kid on the block. He was part of this movement mm. that America wasn't taking to at all. Except mm. for his album. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, this is, it was almost like the acceptable face of mm. it. But there would have been a level of arrogance. He even admitted he thought he was the bee's knees. Mm. Well, being that young and being that that successful straight mm. away, UK number 14, Australia even mm. 25. So massively successful straight out of the, you know, the blocks. So, yeah. yeah. And the critics... Critics loved it, yeah, yeah. Loved him. And we know why. Because David Lee Roth had a theory. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> no, you I love this theory. I've forgotten this, but please. He said that uh, rock critics love Elvis Costello because rock critics look like Elvis Costello. <laughs> That's fair. My favourite lyric on the album 
was I could hear you whispering as I crept by your door, so you found another joker who could please you more. Now, I don't want you guys to think I'm bitter or I'm referring to a, a relationship from when I was younger, but lyrics like that really spoke to me. And there's no wordplay there. It's not a particularly clever lyric. Mm, mm. There's no punning. No so, puns. So when, Graham, did you first hear this album? I, like you guys, heard uh, Watching the Detectives and I was in a car with some high school friends and a friend of mine said, oh, I love this song and I didn't know what it was. And he said, this is Elvis Costello. So at the time, I think commercial radio were playing the song. because mm, it, it, like, it. it was like 4IP or something like that. And yeah, I really loved it. But then um, around this time in May 79, when I started working in the timber yards, as, as, as I, was I love this the, period, timber yards, <laughs> the, the, the lumber years. Yeah. And with my first paycheck, I bought Armed Forces. And then I went back later on and bought the, the two oh, albums. So, so you weren't on board until 79. Yeah, so, so, so I oh. um, came to his music kind of us about. Mm. Yeah. I've heard the third album a lot and then I went back and familiarised with the first See, one. I didn't know that about you. I've known you all these years. Well, I just assumed mm, you were straight on board with Elvis. I think you've seen my record collection and you saw the fact that I had his first 10 albums yeah. on vinyl. <laughs> and you never you never stopped talking about it. <laughs> For the first 15 years I knew you, I think. Something like that. <clears throat> but yeah, okay. So that was when I first heard of him um, in 77. I just want to make this clear. Musically, I was always influenced by XTC or Generation X or anyone with an X in their name, I think. X-Ray Space. Um, <laughs> But it was Elvis who inspired me lyrically. I just thought his lyrics were great. So that's that's the big reason why I... Worship him. Yeah, <laughs> worship him. <laughs> However, I just also want to say that I, like you guys, once Sons and Fascination hit the stores, I thought that people like Elvis Costello and Squeeze and Nicolo, I thought they were being left behind and uh, were kind of last year's... Last year's model. Last year's model, which brings us to the next Elvis the next album. album. <laughs> yeah. March 1978. Hmm. It had Not been a lengthy afterwards. five months since Length, his last yes, album. Ti- a lot of time had passed and we have this year's model, also produced by Nick Lowe. Released in March 1978, massive hit again. Uh, UK number four, US top 30, Australia 26. Yep. Some uh, fantastic singles on this one. I think it's a vast improvement on the first album. Mm. Well, this was kind of his new wave album. I think he was more aware of the scene at this point and what he is a part of. It may have um, instructed his songwriting a bit, perhaps. I think Pump It Up's a great song. Um, Chelsea, I don't want to go to Chelsea. I think, Patrick, we were just talking off air. Yes. Use a technical term about that one. Yes, well, the uh, I don't want to go to Chelsea. I heard that probably for the first time the same day that I heard watching The Detectives because they were both on a soundtrack album called uh, for the film That Summer Mm. starring a young Ray Winston. And it's just about like the best film Soundtrack of all times. It's got some crackers on there, isn't it? Yeah, did, Sex did, and Drugs so and Rock and Roll. Did all three of us have this album? Yeah, well, we were just trying to work out when I bought it. Um, mm. I may have bought it. Well, I remember buying it when it was released, so that was around mm. the following year. But these songs I do remember hearing in Australia. I remember hearing them on the radio because this album was a hit. So, you know, it wasn't exactly yeah, yeah. Un- unheard of. We had uh, This Year's Girl was another single. And Radio, which is also a fantastic song, but that was released afterwards, I believe, in yep. October, yes. but it's on the subsequent pressings. Mm. I think it's a little bit samey as an album, but I mm-hmm. think it's a vast improvement on the first album. Uh, the attractions are now on board with, uh, is it Steve Naive, Bruce Thomas on bass, Pete Thomas, no relation, 
and drums. <laughs> the words no relation always, always appear. appear there, after, yeah, no, it's yeah. usually after Bruce's name, not not Pete's. But they're, they're a great band, and I think that makes a big difference to what he's uh, what he's trying to do there mm. for me, anyway, Graham. Chelsea is a great song. The organ is apparently out of tune, which I never really noticed before, but uh, a lot of people who speak about it say that the uh, keyboards sound thin and evil. Nick Lowe, I think, insisted on that take because it was sounding sounding a bit rough. I Mm. think the band thought it was sounding a bit rough, if I'm getting my story straight. But Nick said... It's just fantastic. I love the guitar in it, that kind of wonky guitar. Mm. It sounds a bit too fast. I wanted to talk about Pump It Up. A lot's been said about Pump It Up in the fact that the song was inspired by other songs, but also that song inspired other songs later. Yeah. So I'm going to do a bit of a, a montage of stuff here. And I think I should also preempt this by saying that the similarities are really in the the metre of his singing. Mm. So that I'm in tender talks. It's almost rapping. Da, 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 da. Yeah, it was almost like a rap, yeah. yeah. Mm. So it starts with uh, Too Much Monkey Business by Chuck Berry in the 50s. Running to and fro, hard working at the mill, never fail in the mill, yet come a rotten bill. Which begat subterranean homesick blues. what I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> in, by Bob Dylan in the 60s. John is in a basement mixing up the medicine. Then pump it up, Elvis Costello in the 70s. Wild Wild West by The Escape Club, which we've mentioned in previous podcasts. In good company there. In the 80s. <laughs> Four massive, massive influences. In the 2000s, Australian band Rogue Traders sampled Pump It Up for Voodoo Child. In the 2010s, U2 had a song called Get On Your Boots, which was very similar. And in the 2020s, Olivia Rodrigo had a song called Brutal. Which didn't sample Pump It Up, but it's that same descending chord thing. It sounds like it's a sample, but it's not. Apparently someone just came up with it. Right. Well, apparently Bob Dylan said to Elvis he couldn't believe that you 2 had ripped him off, ripped no. off Elvis Costello <laughs> as a bit of a tongue-in-cheek mm. <laughs> thing. I've, I've read a four- or five-page essay about Pump It Up mm. in which the author of the essay said that this guy had obviously listened to Subterranean Homesick Blues mm. a lot. And the person who wrote the essay was Bob Dylan. Yes. <laughs> well, Bob Dylan's a massive Elvis Costello fan, apparently. Mm, mm. Yeah. yeah, 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 big fan. Lyricists, they stick together. Yes. Orn- ornery, young, angry men stick <laughs> yeah. together. Maybe that's it. This year's Girl I Really Liked has a drum pattern similar to Ticket to Ride by The Beatles. Radio Radio, of course, was a, a big hit for him, as you say. 
Do you know who Tony Blackburn is? Yes, yeah. Radio 1 DJ. Radio 1 DJ. After hearing Radio Radio, Tony Blackburn referred to him as a silly young man, or silly little man. <laughs> then when Elvis Costello and the Attractions played it on top of the pumps, apparently they have to re-record the song. Some the union of, rule, they yeah, have to re-record and then mine to it. So uh, when Elvis re-recorded the lyric, he's saying, and the radio is in the hands of lots of silly men trying to anaesthetise the way that you feel. And the radio is in the hands of lots of silly men trying to anaesthetise the way that you so he kind of got back yeah, at uh, yeah, yeah. Tony Blackburn there. I heard the song was about how uh, God Save the Queen by the Sex Pistols the previous year had been banned mm. from the radio. Yeah. Still got to number two without any airplay, basically, airplay, yeah. um, and it was deleted from all official histories of the charts. And that was, mm. even though it was released in October 78, that was what the song was referring to. Can I also say... This is a quote from Elvis in 2003, and I say this with a certain amount of trepidation because I work in radio and we are recording this <laughs> currently at a radio station. <laughs> but Elvis said, oh, you might as well admit now that radio has nothing to do with music anymore. It's in the advertising business. There's a real skill to programming in an intelligent way, but nobody does that anymore. It's all done by computer, by committee. Radio is absolutely the enemy of music. They are my sworn and mortal enemy and I will have nothing to do with them. <laughs> I think the only thing interesting about that is that he said it fairly recently. It's always yeah. been the way. Yeah. I mean, back to the payola scandals well, of the 50s in America. I mean, that's what radio is there to do. It's business. Yeah. Mm. I quite understand why he's so irate about that. Maybe it's because he's not hearing the music that he wants anymore. Did you ever hear the music that you wanted to hear? Well, on no, radio? I think he, I think <laughs> yeah, he yeah. did. Like when he grew up, when he wrote Radio Soul, which became Radio Radio, it was all about him staying up late at night and hearing all this great music. I was seriously thinking about having a receiver when the switch broke soul. When a boss inside said, are you a believer? This is your radio soul. But that was probably on pirate radio, like Radio pirate, Luxembourg yeah. mm. and the other ones. that. The, I mean, the stuff that I learned to love was on Triple Z in Brisbane and, and the equivalent in Melbourne for you, yep, Patrick. Yep, yep. Um, you, you heard the hits on uh, your commercial stations and yeah, that's yeah, yeah. what they continue to do yeah. today. One interesting thing in terms of this year's model being seen as a new wave, like a classic new wave, pioneering new wave album, is that Elvis himself said that I had certain records that I thought we, as in he and the Attractions, were basing it all on Aftermath by the Rolling Stones was the album that this year's model was based on. Who knows Aftermath by, <laughs> by, by the Rolling Stones? Um, that, well, Stones fans, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's a 1966 Rolling Stones album. Mm. Uh, the best-known song, I think, from it is Under My Thumb. But I don't, I don't really hear the Rolling Stones particularly on this year's model. So, no, oh, no, I maybe think it's... You Belong to Me. There was a Rolling Stones song. Could have been called The Last Time. It's less, you know, uh, as I said, the first album, really, you can see all the joins and all the influences there. Mm. Uh, this one, less so. I do want to throw in a couple of bits of information about this one. You didn't go to this gig in Sydney, but in, in his first Australian tour in December 78, mm. this is quite a well-known story. There was a riot at the Capitol Theatre here <clears throat> because they played a 35-minute set, I believe. Uh, 50. Yeah, very short set and didn't do an encore. So the, the Australians get a bit irate about these sorts of things. 
and there was a yes. little bit of a mini riot. Yeah, yeah <laughs> in that, December '78. Yeah, it was in the Regent Theatre. Was it the Regent? Sorry, in, in here in um, in Sydney. What I love about the story is that if you read about it, you sort of see the the value of money back then. Like it was nine dollars fifty a ticket, and they only got fifty minutes worth of music. But when you uh, look at even taking inflation <laughs> into consideration. These days, we get two hours of music for like over a hundred bucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I reckon they got a pretty good deal for nine dollars. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it was the times. It was the well, well, apparently, this riot um, caused at least two thousand dollars damage, which is you know the equivalent of like a thousand pounds. Let's yeah. say, wow, that's <laughs> a small amount of damage. Australians, <laughs> Australians get angry, but they're not. They don't do much damage. Yeah, pretty yeah, harmless. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure after the riot they cleaned up afterwards. Probably. <laughs> That's the Japanese. <laughs> um, well, I don't think there were any arrests in this riot. I think it was a riot without arrests. It's pretty um, lightweight the, riot. Yeah, but the uh, tour promoter, um, Zev Isaac, if I'm saying his name correctly, um, he said, if I'd been a concert goer, I'd have been upset with the show. <laughs> the promoter of, of the Elvis Costello tour is saying that. <laughs> But they probably played the first two albums and that amounted to about 50 minutes. Yeah, yeah. There's no actions. There's no actions. There's no actions. My favourite lyric is, don't say you love me when there's just a rumour. Don't say a word if there's any doubt. Sometimes I think that love is just a tumour and you've got to cut it out. So I don't know. I, I don't know whether he's saying cut the tumor out or whether you just have to cut out just your cut it behavior. Out. There are themes developing here, Graham. Yes, in terms of your chosen lyrics. <laughs> well, you know, I went through a rough time in my, in my you life. Know, you know, Elvis's mother told him to write what you dare not say. So maybe that's mm, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, it, which yeah, I think yeah, is okay. great advice. Uh, and yeah. I think he's pretty much done that his whole yeah. career. <laughs> you were obviously having a challenging decade, Graham. <laughs> it was. Well, the lumberyard's not for the faint-hearted. <laughs> It's not an easy place to work. <laughs> they, they wanted to go out with me, but, you know, not with someone who works in lumber. You know, mm. it's, no. it's like working with a policeman, you know. You just yeah, yeah. never know when he's going to come back home. Your sparkling personality couldn't couldn't compensate <laughs> for your lowly position in society. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that still stands today. Still today. <laughs> By the way. Yeah. Patty, what did you think of this year's model? We haven't uh, asked you. Or have we yeah, covered I, that? Yeah, yeah. I, I love the songs that we agree are fantastic. Pump it up. I don't want to go to Chelsea. Both, both of those are just pure genius, I think, really. Mm. Um, I quite like the album. I think it's definitely um, a, a quantum leap from the previous album. Mm. And I don't have a favourite or least favourite lyric. I think the, the lyrics are good, though. I'm all in favour of, of all his favorite favorite songs. Songs. Yeah, okay. Yeah. okay. I, I just want to say to, to, to our listeners that I, I asked Mark and Patrick whether they would give me their favourite lyric from every album, and they shot me down <laughs> immediately. <laughs> you didn't like his uh, his punny wordplay lyrics very much? Oh, I, we'll get to that. Oh, we'll oh to we're going to get to yeah. that. Okay. Because he, he was only beginning to get into full flow pun-wise. Mm. Oh, that was the point I was going to make. Yeah, maybe we'll save that till the next uh, album. Oh, Armed Forces. January 79. He joined the Armed Forces. This is my favourite of the four albums we're talking about. I'm going to put that out there right now. I'll, I, I agree. I think, to use the phrase you just stole from me, it's a quantum leap. Ooh, sorry. From, um, from the previous. <laughs> it's all right. I'll, I'll edit his one out and put yours <laughs> in. Put mine. Again, produced by Nick Lowe, but the quality of the songs, the quality of the production is, um, is hugely advanced. There's some stuff with, with accidents will happen 
uh, and Oliver's army on the bass in particular that I think is fantastic, the harmonies that he's playing against. Mm. Oh, he was a great bass player. Oh, but uh, he didn't see that in the other stuff. It's just absolutely beautiful. Mm. Um, great singles, yeah. Accents will happen. Oliver's army inspired by Dancing Queen, ABBA. I also really like Green Shirt, which wasn't a single. Mm. I think that's a brilliant song. Massive hit again, you know, UK number two, US top ten, yeah. Australia. He's just going from strength to strength. It's no wonder he was getting a little arrogant. Mm. <laughs> yes. The extraordinary thing for me in terms of the US chart placing is that he didn't have hit singles in the US. He no. just had hit albums. And mm. how many acts were there like that? Grateful Dead were one. I mean, there were very few album bands out there. Well, mm. if they were, they were that old guard yeah, of the yeah, Eagles yeah. and, and yeah, Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd, things like that, yeah. who were on FM radio. Yeah. And I don't know that Elvis would have been. He may yeah, have so been. I don't know how he was getting cut through mm. compared to... And there was no MTV at that point either, mm. so there was no yeah. videos to get him through. Yeah, yeah. For his uh, good looks to shine through. <laughs> what did you think of the um, uh, Well, apparently Bowie's Low and Heroes albums were also influences. Not that I, I really hear that. The sound is slightly more dense than the previous album. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there are all sorts of songs that I that I like. Oliver's Army, Big Boys, Goon Squad. <laughs> I really like the ending of Accidents Will Happen where it goes into the Beatlesque kind mm. of. Mm. That's one of the few Elvis Costello songs in which you don't see the entire song mapped out from the first verse and chorus. So mm. it's quite experimental mm. by his standards. But uh, yeah, I think it's a, I don't want to sound condescending by saying it's a likeable album. It doesn't contain any of my all-time favourite albums, but it's, but it's definitely a, a strong one. Can I just throw in something that maybe I'm the only one who will think this? A song called Moods for Moderns. As soon as I heard it, it reminded me of Boogie Nights by a band called Heatwave, disco band. <laughs> Rod Temperton, who wrote Temperton, a lot yeah. of uh, a Thriller and Michael Jackson stuff, wrote, mm. wrote Boogie Nights. And it just sounds like it to me. You might want to do a little comparison. Yeah, I guess it does. I just... It also reminded me of Paul McCartney's Coming Up. Maybe just the, the, the jauntiness of it. Yeah, yeah. I just it's, it's immediately I was like, that's Boogie Nights. Um, Which is pretty odd if it is. <laughs> <laughs> so he started funk, basically, is what you're saying. <laughs> I'm not going to say that. I just want to run this past you guys. I read in that little Armed Forces book I've got there that significant airplay in Australia for senior service, which charted in the top 10 in some Australian radio station charts purely from airplay. Right. Now, I don't remember hearing a senior service on any radio. No. 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 So no. I don't know whether there might have been a couple of stations in Sydney or something who that started playing that song. That seems odd to me because it wasn't a single at all. Yeah. Well, it was a top ten album in Australia, so it's not entirely beyond the realm's yeah. possibility. What do you think about Oliver's Army as a subversive song? I like um, Elvis slightly mocked. Sting, in an interview, he said that we've got a subversive song on our next album. It's called uh, Invisible Sun, you know, from Ghost in the Machine. And, you know, Elvis was saying, look, you don't tell people you've got a subversive song. You just do the subversive song. <laughs> <You just do. laughs> but I did see a review in 
in The Guardian about Oliver's Army, saying that the song was so smart and subversive that many were unaware it was a protest song at all, mm. which to me... Kind of misses the point. So it's failed then, has it? You know, mm. a, a mm. little bit, it reminded me a little bit of um, Springsteen's Born in the USA, for instance, in terms of being misinterpreted by people. So, yeah, it's really hard to kind of gauge the success of, of a song. Maybe... Elvis needed to say there's a really subversive song on my next album. He should have taken some lessons from Sting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a great song. I mean, it is a subversive song. It's about the troubles, mm. if I can yeah. use those two words <laughs> with a faux-Irish accent, yes. in Ireland, yeah. Apparently his grandfather was um, a soldier in Ireland uh, as part of the British Army Yeah. But, uh, previously. Yeah. yeah, so he did have some history with this. He has some Irish an- ancestry anyway, doesn't he? Elvis? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, but it's a great song. I read that it has a similar chord progression to Don't Worry Baby by the Beach Boys. And I had a bit of a listen and yeah, it's the same chord change, but it's a completely different song. So I won't be matching those two. I didn't hear that, no. I want to say, uh, with Accidents Will Happen, it kind of uh, documents his many infidelities at the time. Why can't I say infidelities? You've never been able to say it, Graham. (laughs) You've never been able to admit it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it said in the article that I read, it said, including uh, one with a taxi driver in Tucson, Arizona. Mm. And I immediately thought, well, is that a car accident? Did he did he rear end someone or something? But it was <laughs> he may have done. <laughs> but it was more. Um, <laughs> it was more like apparently he he met there was a, obviously a lady taxi driver. I don't know. Is it obvious? <laughs> is it? <laughs> is it? I don't want to assume you. Yeah. <laughs> but um, he did say rear ended. <laughs> but the. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. It's, it's okay, Patrick. I'll take that out. Yeah, um, don't take it out. There's more than one way to pay the fare. I'm. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't. Has anyone ever quit from a podcast right in the middle of an episode? <laughs> sorry, sorry, Mark. I didn't expect that. Um, That's why I'm here. <laughs> uh, what I wanted to say about accidents will happen is that uh, if you've seen the music video, yes. They say it's considered the first all-animated music video and it was directed by Annabelle Jankel, who was the sister of Jazz Jankel. But one of my favourite videos of the time. Great video. I used to love that. Yeah. Speaking of Beatles endings to songs, a Party Girl yes, has yes. an end that's similar to the Beatles. Yeah, She's yeah, so yeah. Heavy. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I also read that Green Shirt, the smart young woman in the light blue screen who comes into my house every night. The smart young woman on a light blue screen who comes into my house every night. Apparently that was Angela Rippon, who was the first female newsreader in the UK in right, 1966. Right. Mm. I don't know whether the song is about her she was the reference. The inspiration. The it's yeah, a great inspiration. song in any case. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I also love Big Boys, Goon Squad, Moods for Moderns and Chemistry Class. I, I think I like I like the whole album because... It was the first one you bought. It was the first one I bought. I mm. played it all the time. 
But also, I think this, more than any other album he's ever produced up till now, has more infectious melodies buried within each song than, than anything else that he's done. Like every time I, I put it on, like I actually hadn't listened to it for a long time until just recently for this podcast. Yeah. But I sing along to the whole album. There's just so many wonderful infectious melodies, really good lyrics. It was obviously his pop album. Mm. He was going for the charts on this one. And uh, Nick Lowe spent the time on it, I think. Three albums I, d- in I don't want to be Nick critical Lowe. of his previous production efforts, but he... <laughs> well, it was different times as well. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember where you were working when you bought this album? Yeah, right? good question. This was the the Tempe art. Oh, this is the Lumber Years. This was the Lumber Years. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, it's a, it's a good soundtrack to that. Hmm. To, good, to, good, honest work. To putting panels of Western <laughs> red cedar up on shelves, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it was perfect. You must have built up some pretty good shoulder muscles back then, did you? <laughs> no, you, you wouldn't have recognised me. <laughs> no, I probably wouldn't have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is someone who did manual labour. You know, I don't do that anymore. No, no. You wouldn't know it to look at you. <laughs> um, are we going to talk about the incident, by the way? Um, the incident comes a little bit later, doesn't it? In uh, we're, not far, we're not far from it. It's not in, far it's from in it. 79. March, March 79, the incident, yeah. uh, probably on the tour uh, for that album, I suppose. Yeah, the US in- I'm happy not to talk about it because it's been given so much um, traction over the years. I think it's interesting to talk about it in the lead into the fourth album because obviously his influences are very much uh, 60s R&B and yeah. pop. And, mm. and, the, and the, the, the incident, we should say, is that he got into a drunken bar argument in the States uh, between himself and some other uh, bands. It was Stephen Stills' touring ah, band. Yes, which led to some nasty exchanges and some ill-advised uh, words. He says, Elvis, that it was just to kind of end the conversation so he was trying to be as outrageous and provocative as Mm. possible, which is pretty poor defence and being really drunk as well. But he denies having any of those sort of racist sentiments, which we hope so. The album that came subsequent to to this, which is Get Happy, which we're going to talk about now, yeah, in February Mm. 80, is pretty much, to me, uh, 20 songs, which is full of R&B, soul and 60s stuff. So whether that was some kind of reaction to that or not, I don't know, mm. or whether it's just a coincidence. But um, interesting yeah. nevertheless. A lot of people have made that comparison that he uh, mm. he went down that road just to show, kind of show everyone, look, I love black people, I love black music and all that sort of thing. Well, well he, yeah. He produced the specials debut yeah, he, album. That's right. Um, in June, I think it was, that 79, year. Yeah. So, I mean, he obviously didn't have a problem with black people. Mm. No, no, exactly right. This is an interesting album. You, Patrick, you told me this was the first and possibly only album of Elvis's you've ever bought. Mm. The first single is Can't Stand Up For Falling Down, which is a Sam and Dave, well, it's not a Sam and Dave song, but it's a cover, and their version is the most famous version of it. And it was meant to be released on Two Tone on, on the uh, specials label, but couldn't yeah. couldn't be because of contractual problems. But yep. I don't know, this album's interesting. Like I said, 20 songs, very short. Some of them are like two minutes. 20 songs is a lot. Mm, yeah. uh, he said at the time that he was tired of the new wave sound. This is in February 1980, tired of the new wave sound. <laughs> um, yeah, Graham, what's, what's your thoughts on Get Happy, February 1980? Another hit again. He just cannot go wrong, can he? He was on a roll at this point. Mm. Um, too many songs. Too many songs. Too yeah. many songs. It yeah. would have been a really good 12 song album. As in extended, so that they were three minutes long instead yeah, of just, yeah, just less. Right. Yeah, less yeah. Off, he, less. he would have had to fill them out a bit, but he had a great band, so I'm sure they could have. 
There was a lot of filler on there. It sounded like almost demos. We'll chuck this on, see if mm, it works. We'll yeah. put this on, you know. There's a song in there called Beaten to the Punch, which I, I, I never liked, and it, it just sounded like something he wrote in the taxi on the way to the <laughs> studio, and they just kind of... <laughs> the taxi again. <laughs> it's the same taxi. It was the same guy. And, it was fertile um, ground, that taxi. Yes. He didn't even tell the, the attractions, the chords. He just said, just play this. You know and what to do. And they bashed it down. However, there were some wonderful songs that are like secondary modern. King Horse. Which is real Motowny kind of a thing. Uh, New Amsterdam. He demoed New Amsterdam and played all the instruments and brought it in for the uh, attractions to play. And um, they didn't do as good a job, so the demo was what wound up on the album. That's a great track. That was the third single, I think, on there. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I Can't Stand Up For Falling Down was good. Oh, Riot Act. Riot Act is, is my Can I just talk about Riot Act? Because I sure. think the lyrics of that apparently refer to the incident that we just spoke about. Mm. But it's a real standalone song. It reminds me of what Radiohead went on to do. <laughs> Because Elvis doesn't do atmospheric. He doesn't do... No, no, Didn't no. then, sorry, I should mm. say. Emptiness. Everything's chock-a-block, mm. full-on all the time, whereas Riot Act has so much space in it. Yeah. It's a beautiful yeah, song, yeah. and I admit I wasn't familiar with it. And that's something that could come out now, and you'd go, well, that's a, yeah, that's yeah, a great yeah. track, and it really stands out from the rest of the album. Mm. Mm. Love it. Well, I've, I bought the album more or less at the time on cassette, and Riot Act has always been my favourite. And as you say, the, the sparseness is really interesting, mm. particularly the pace at which he delivers the lyrics mm. early on. It's like every syllable is is kind of enunciated and it, it's like he's sort of thinking out loud mm. as distinct from that he's sculpted the lyrics, which is more his style. You know, mm. like there's a kind of a mathematical precision mm. to how he writes his lyrics in these four albums we're talking about. But, yeah, something like, you know, forever doesn't mean forever anymore. I said forever, but it doesn't look like I'm going to be around much anymore. Mm. Is There's your ab- favourite lines, Patrick. Yeah, but, like, <laughs> it's a devastating, mm. you know, couple of lines and it takes about 45 seconds for him to get through them because he's singing them kind of so slowly. So, mm. yeah, I think it's kind of epic as well as understated. It does contain a pun mm. that I think was unnecessary. <laughs> Go on, say it because... You know the one I mean, It could Graham. be my favourite lyric that I've written down here. <laughs> Probably is. Don't put your heart out on your sleeve. I bet it's this one. Um, don't put your heart out on your sleeve when your remarks are off the cuff. And I think that's clever, but also somewhat pointless. And it sounds like a line that he slaved over, as distinct from <laughs> something so coming from the brain rather than the heart. understand what you're saying. They do sometimes get in the way. As I said before, his clever, clever lyrics, let's call them, Mm. were on the last two albums, Armed Forces and Get Happy, were at the forefront. 
Mm. And uh, and I think he kind of brought it back a bit on all subsequent albums. But uh, it's a great way to finish the album, though, Riot Act. That's mm. a brilliant ending. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He did issue something of an apology for his puns in an interview with, with the <laughs> Face, the Face magazine, in about 1983. He said there are certain lines when I look back, including a wave of her hand could be so tidal. It's just thrown in the middle of one of the songs on Armed Forces. It's a really terrible pun. So he's, he's, he's apologising for it. And you and love it, that line, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I love that line. He shouldn't apologise for anything. <laughs> As an aside, I wanted to draw attention to a singer we had here in Australia called Joe Camilleri, who was the singer from Jojo Zepp and the Falcons. And he was kind of being touted as Australia's Elvis Costello. And if you listen to his singing, particularly around that time, late 70s, early 80s, he did deliver his songs in a similar kind of fashion that Elvis did. It would have been a battle between him and Stephen Cummings of the sports. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah he, he was he, also heavily influenced. He I mean, I think Elvis Costello had a massive influence in Australia. Mm-hmm. I'm sure not just here, but there seemed to be a lot of people doing similar-ish things around that time mm. or trying to do what he was doing here anyway. Yeah. There was a song uh, Jojo Zep released called All I Want to Do and I remember when I heard it, it has that usual descending major scale thing that Elvis did a lot on accidents will happen and tracks like that. But I had to listen to Get Happy recently and listen to the song called Man Called Uncle. Not only is it exactly the same, but they're in the same key. Uh, All I Wanted to came out in April 1980. Get Happy was February 1980. So uh, I don't know whether that was too soon to be a, a rip-off or whether they just on opposite sides of the world were just thinking yeah, yeah. thinking similarly. And J.J. Sepp, of course, uh, supported Elvis Costello on that uh, 1978 tour. So um, Maybe they could have got him to play some extra songs to avoid the riot. Yes, that's right. We, Elvis isn't coming back, but Joe Camilleri <laughs> will. Joe <laughs> Camilleri. Come on out, Joe. Him and Wilbur Wilde are going to do a sax The record company went big. In Australia, mm-hmm. on publicising this album, there was a full-page ad in the Australian magazine Roadrunner, and the slogan said, it's a great record to dance to, but you wouldn't want to live there, which is almost incomprehensible. Yeah. <laughs> Nonetheless. What does that mean? They were trying to do some clever lyrics a la Elvis Costello, but yeah. it didn't quite work. It didn't quite work, yeah. It didn't quite work. Have uh, we finished with Get Happy? I think we finished with everything. Um I, I want, I want add- you, Graham, to finish this up and tell us the importance of Elvis Costello to the new wave movement in these four albums. Because we've finished at 1980. Normally we'd go to 1983, but Elvis released another 72 albums <laughs> in the next well, should, four years. Sh- should you and I say how we felt about, yeah, about uh, Elvis? I just thought, given this is Graham's thing, you know, I'd like, I'd like to hear why we're doing it. Yeah, but, but, I mean, you... Typically, you know, each of us says a little thing and then mm. the person who is likely to have the... The kind of I'd like to hear what you guys think yeah. about his importance in well, the... I, I don't see Elvis so much in terms of, of his influence, but I think the most striking thing about those the four albums we've covered is that deep down he saw himself as a singer-songwriter mm. rather than a new wave musician or an innovator or any of those those things. So you know, there were around about the time of these four albums, there were bands like The Stranglers, Public Image, Susie and the Banshees. They weren't singer-songwriters. They were trying to kind of forge a new kind of path for music, that sort of thing. Mm. And that wasn't Elvis's bag at all. And he was a really talented 
songwriter. There are some absolutely brilliant songs. There's no one album that I really love, but you know, the, I bought um, an Elvis Costello compilation, The Man, I think it's called, from like the oh, yes. sort of late 80s maybe. And, you know, it's like 18 or 20 songs and, you know, they're, they're all great. I think he deserves the place because he's not a musical innovator in the sense that those guys that you just mentioned are. But he brought a sense of lyricism to to the whole thing, which wasn't really around with a lot of the bands. And a lot of the lyrics of the bands that we love from that era are kind of a little bit airy-fairy and a bit open to interpretation. His are not. They're very yeah, direct. Yeah, yeah, And they tell stories, which, which I loved. And, and he wrote killer pop songs, mm. pretty much hard to ignore them, but just cloaked them in a bit of energy and anger of the new wave yeah, period. Yeah. He fits in really well. He definitely does. He, he would have been successful anyway like a lot of those yeah, guys yeah, that were yeah. a bit older, like your Stings and whoever else, they were going to make it anyway. Mm. They just hitched themselves to the new wave bandwagon and wrote it for all it was worth. And <laughs> I didn't like <laughs> him. both wrong, <laughs> I didn't like him very much, you know. I could take a leave him. It was okay. Actually, I, I don't agree with you on the idea that these people would have been successful anyway. Uh, people like Elvis and Sting and Joe Jackson and Graham Parker, no one would have known who these people were without the new wave movement. They kind of... They hitch their wagon. They hitch their wagon. Is that the, is that the saying? Hitch to that their rising star. Hitch the <laughs> they hitch their wagon to that rising star. I love it. That's that's the image I'm going with. <laughs> that was exactly the phrase I was after. So basically, we have four distinct albums here. The first one was like a demo tape that was commercially released. The second was like his new wave album. The third was his pop album. And the fourth was his soul and R&B album. So we got to see his journey from 1977 to 1980. And we witnessed what he had in common with new wave and where he was at odds with it. Um, I think he begrudgingly became a part of the new wave movement. But while he was there... I think he loved it. I think he enjoyed being the representative of punk in America in particular. Um, I loved his songs, his persona, but more than anything, I loved his lyrics. Uh, I tried to write lyrics like him. I would be so embarrassed if you guys ever read any of my lyrics that were inspired by him. I think I've got a fair idea. <laughs> I don't think you ever stopped. Judging from your later output. Yes. You never stopped. <laughs> it's... Uh, I'd just like to end this with two quotes I read recently from two different journalists at two different publications. One guy said Elvis's second album was the template for the transition from punk to new wave. And the other guy said that the second album was when new wave found its front man. And I think as far as talent and style go, they couldn't have asked for a better front man. Here we go, Mark. Let me know what you think of this. During the mid-70s, a group of angry young men sprang from the punk scene in London. They possessed a singer-songwriter sensibility, combined with an acerbic wit, lyrical acrobats... Ly lyrical acrobats... Acrobatics. Acrobatics. Yeah. They, they possess lyrical acrobats. <laughs> yeah. Where do they keep them? <laughs> they had some acrobats with them. Uh, <laughs> I don't like it already. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's better than I remember it. 